Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning into the Freedom First podcast with your host, me, Jake. Today, obviously, I have a very radical and very controversial guest. His name is Arvin Vora. He got his education from Brown University, a very, very well-established Ivy League school. He is a business owner, the former vice chair of the Libertarian National Committee, and he is running for president of the United States of America and the Libertarian Party, among many, many other candidates. Uh, I do want to mention before this podcast, just because I do have not just Arvin, but a bunch of different people that come onto the show, a bunch of different candidates, a bunch of different business owners. I would like to mention that just because I have somebody on the show does not mean that I endorse them. It also doesn't mean I agree with them on absolutely everything. If I just agree with them on one or two things, just because I agree with them on one or two subjects doesn't mean I nas- uh, doesn't mean I n- agree with them on everything. With that being said, let's get to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you all for tuning into the podcast. Today, I'm with Arvin Vora, who studied mathematics and economics at Brown University and then worked as an actuary. He founded a company that helps students who are taking college entrance exams. He's a politician, author, educator, and former vice chairman of the Libertarian National Committee. And now he is running for a libertarian candidate for president. So how are you, Arvin? I'm doing good, and, and thanks for having me on today. Wonderful. So you're 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 running for president. Why you and why now? Right now, America is poised for a change in its culture. And I fundamentally believe that we are ready for a cultural war that's going to make us freer, that's going to change our government, that's going to get rid of some of the laws and regulations and whatnot and make us a better, stronger, and more prosperous society. That that sounds good to me. <laughs> right um, so 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 to me, uh, in our district, uh, the first thing I got to ask you, because in my area, we have a ton of farmers and on your website, it says that you want to end all crop subsidies yes. and promote healthier food. Mm-hmm. How does your plan help farmers and the consumer? So when you subsidize anything, you encourage the production of that. So right now we have an overproduction of things that we don't need and an underproduction of things that we do need. America is an incredibly, I mean, it has incredibly fertile land. I mean, it has has a huge variety of different things, but there are ways that we can damage it. And one way to damage land is monocropping for many, many generations. And so rather than allowing farmers to to produce what the market actually wants and actually needs, we have subsidies that are encouraging farmers to produce the wrong thing. What that's led to is a massive decrease in innovation in farming, a decrease in the quality of farming, a decrease in what we could be having instead. And so what I want to see is healthier food, more environmentally sustainable production, and that comes from getting government out of it and cutting taxes accordingly. Mm-hmm. There is a, there's an, a tax that really hurts farmers, the inheritance tax. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard about it, where um, oh, you know, somebody that, yeah. passes on. My stance on the inheritance tax, I just want to completely get rid of it. Uh, could you mm-hmm. illuminate your, your stance on the taxes that weigh down on our farmers? Sure. So, so the simple answer is yes. I want to get rid of all inheritance taxes. But I do want to talk a little bit about the history of the inheritance tax. Where did it come from? And why do we have them? Why an inheritance tax of all things? Historically, the inheritance tax was designed to break up powerful families. 
Family has been the only thing in history that has ever stood up against the government. It was not powerful individuals, and it certainly wasn't a powerful, powerful state that stood up to the King of England and forced him to sign the Magna Carta. It was powerful families that were large in number, large in wealth, and honestly, large in weaponry. And the power of those families is what the government has always feared. The way to damage the family, one of the many ways to damage a family, to damage you know dynastic, multi-generational families, is through inheritance taxes. It is a targeted attack on the only thing that has ever put government in its place. Uh, if you've ever watched a show like Downton Abbey, you'll see sometimes they talk about you know their worries about the inheritance taxes and whatnot. <laughs> and and, and it's, this, it's the same thing in the modern era. I mean, that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of families becoming powerful. And if we want to have strong families in America, and when I say strong, I don't just mean you know a nuclear family. I mean a strong family, a strong dynastic family, the, the thing that's like written into the DNA of the human race that has been the defining feature of all human societies in all times except for the present. If we want that, we have to end inheritance taxes. So one of my one of my goals is in is and is to end the inheritance tax at the federal level and to encourage people uh, to, to encourage state level inheritance taxes also and to, 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 to encourage uh, state legislators, governors to end the state level inheritance tax. That I, I can completely agree with that. And I think you touched on an important point there. Um, they're afraid because these families are incredibly armed. The people are incredibly armed. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that. Let's talk about sure. the Second Amendment. And fortunately, states like mine, New York, we mm -hmm. are seeing progressives winning the war on gun control. Mm -hmm. I heavily oppose gun control. What does the Vora administration bring to the table when protecting our Second Amendment? Sure. And let me, I just want to quibble with a, a little bit over there, if you don't mind, which is when you said that progressives are are winning. I mean, in, in a sense, they're getting their way, but that's not winning. So when you have a child that says, I want to eat Skittles for breakfast and their parents says no, and the child says, no, I want to. And the parents like, OK, go ahead. Technically, the child has won the argument. Right. But they haven't won. They're just damaging themselves. They are hurting mm. themselves. And the parent in this case mm. is allowing it. So have progressives be, been victorious in the argument in many parts of New York? Absolutely. No question about that. Have they won? God, no. They're disarming themselves. The, one, of the few, one of the few nice things about the Trump administration is it's gotten a lot of people on the left to realize that maybe you do need weapons. Yeah. The government can overreach in ways that you don't like as much. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so, sorry, go, go ahead. You were going to say. So I was going to say the coronavirus has actually presented a unique opportunity for those on the left to kind of realize how important the Second Amendment is. I mean, I yeah. have friends who are on the left who are just like, man, how do I get a gun? I'm, I'm starting yeah. to get scared, you know, when they historically they've always been opposed to guns. Exactly. So it's kind of playing into what you're saying. And, you know, and, and a lot of that, I mean, a, a lot of that is is a a rural urban distinction, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about if you're if you're in, in the more rural areas and, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends, a lot of my supporters are in rural type areas most of the threats you face in a rural area can realistically be handled by a powerful rifle. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the time, you the worst that you're going to see is a bear and a strong enough rifle will put it down, right? Mm -hmm. But in the cities, the threats that you face are government. And in order to stop a SWAT team raid, I don't know what kind of weapon you would need. I mean, I don't have it, whatever it is, but it's not something simple. So a lot of times people in urban areas are saying, well, what, what would I do? It's not going to keep me safe from the threats that I face. It's not going to keep me safe from the police. And so what's the what's so they don't they don't understand there, there. There's a bit of a separation over there. Here's my position on guns. You have the right to have as powerful a military weapon as the government. 
if you can afford mm -hmm. it. Nobody has nobody has an obligation to buy it for you. I mean, that's how a right works. A right is you have to buy it. And and I don't think there's been any, any tax, any additional taxes, regulations, or anything like that on buying them. So if you want to buy a machine gun, go ahead, buy a machine gun. Now, if you want to kill somebody with a machine gun without any, not in self-defense, which is because you want to, well, that's the problem. Murder is a problem. It's not like I'm in favor of murder, but if you want to have a gun for self-defense, if you want to have a gun to keep a government in check, if you want to have a, the most powerful machine gun you can buy, go ahead. Mm -hmm. in, in, in my district, you know, we have a... Uh, people will live out in the out in the rural area. They they live about forty minutes away from any near any police station. Those people need firearms because they can't just wait for the police to show up. If there's an intruder, they got to be able to hold them at gunpoint yeah. or put the intruder down if necessary. Exactly, exactly. And and that's and that's the thing. I mean, even if you're living in a rural area, it's not that the nearest person is seventy miles away. I mean, the nearest person is maybe. If you have a big, huge farm, maybe the nearest person's a thousand acres away, but that's honestly in a car, not very far. So that is a distance that can be very easily covered and you need to be able to protect yourself. Also, if you live in an urban area and you don't live inside of a police station, then you also need to be able to protect yourself. I mean, I'd have never heard of this kind of armed robbery that takes 20 minutes or five minutes for that matter. These things are fast. And if you mm -hmm. want to defend yourself, you need to be able to react quickly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's become a cliche now, but it still holds true, which is when seconds matter, the police are only minutes away. And that's mm -hmm. why we need to have weapons. Here's my position on weapons. And I've said this publicly in many different forms, not just in libertarian areas. I've said these, this in front of conservatives and I've said this in front of progressives who have often fairly universally booed it. And this is important because a presidential candidate needs to be able to stand up for our values everywhere, not just pander when they're popular. But I'll tell you exactly what I've said to progressive groups right before they were about to lobby for more gun control. Yeah, I've been invited to speak as a representative of the Libertarian Party, for example. And I'll tell you exactly what I told them, that if I'm elected president, I will immediately pardon every single person who's in jail for a weapons charge. And then I'm going to sit there in the, in the Oval Office or if I've sold the White House, sit somewhere else and just pardon people for any weapons possession charge. What happens right now, and this is something that progressives are now starting to figure out, gun laws and regulations, the way that they're written, are designed to target people who don't have as much formal education. So often people will get a gun. They don't not do anything menacing with it. They're you know keeping their home. They're trying to be safe. They, they're trying to do the right thing. They get confused by the forms. Why? Because the forms are confusing. I have an Ivy League education. I think the forms are confusing. And so it is a confusing thing on purpose. And what happens is somebody didn't fill out some part of the form right and they get arrested for a paperwork error that's nonsense. That's being used to target rural communities. It's being used to target minority communities. It's being used to target every community at any point that the police decide that they have a problem with that group right now that week. And that could be any group, whatever group you're in. If you think you're safe from the police, that can change on a dime. Yeah. Um, I just want to kind of move the conversation along now. Sure. Uh, let's talk about education. Education is a, a key point in my campaign. It's a key issue here in New York. Yep. You said before that you want to eliminate the Department of Education. Yep. Uh, I, want, I want my viewers to know, and I want to know, how does that benefit the education system and how do you implement that? There is nothing worse you can do to your kids than put them in a public school. It is the worst form of education on earth. It is a prison type of education and it is generally incompetently run. 
And so, so at the federal level, you can work to end the Department of Education, but that's not the goal. The goal is to get rid of public schools completely right now, as fast as we can. Now, here are some things about public schools that that are true in Maryland, and 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 New York is a similar state, so I wouldn't be surprised if they're true in New, in New York as well. In Maryland, uh, when you're when you're applying to be a teacher, there's a text there's a test called the Praxis. It's like a standardized test for teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And if your SAT score in high school was an 1100 or above, which is not that amazing an SAT score, you are exempted from the praxis. In other words, that's considered such a high score that they say, yeah, don't worry about any more testing. You've proven yourself. I mean, uh, uh, which to me is actually an extremely low score and certainly not a score that's so high that it, that it, that it demands that you just completely bypass all further testing. To me, that's absurd. Public school teachers are often massively underqualified for the jobs. And those that are correctly qualified academically are generally unqualified in terms of their values. I've heard many public school teachers say to me, Common Core is a terrible system. And I say, I agree, stop teaching it, leave, get out of there. If you can't commit yourself to the truth, if you cannot demonstrate the most basic level of human courage, then you don't have any business being a teacher. You can be a guy talking about math, but if you want to call yourself an educator, you have to at least at the very minimum level, commit yourself to the truth. And so public schools have to go. And my goal is to get rid of public schools in every way possible. One of those ways is through voluntary action. And so members of my campaign and members of my business, we've worked together to create something called the AP Homeschool Project. And it's specifically designed for people who are saying, listen, I want to do homeschooling. I have no idea how to do it, but I want to make sure my kids are getting the academic rigor that they need. This is going to give you more academic rigor than you can find anywhere from any public school, any private school, any magnet school. It is completely free. The website for that, by the way, is aphomeschool.com. And this is a way to encourage people to voluntarily leave public schools and give their kids something a million times better. So how would you transition that? Like, what would be the, the appropriate way to, to implement that is over a course period of time? I think you said as fast as possible. How do we do that proficiently? I just do it immediately. I mean, there, there's whether you do it quickly or slowly is not going to make any difference at all. If you, you know, I work with, I mean, I work in education. I work with kids, right? <laughs> and I, let's say I give them a math problem. I give a kid a math problem. I say like, all right, do this math problem right now. It'll take them, say, five minutes to do, right? I say, do this math problem and it's due five weeks from now. He's going to procrastinate for all five weeks and then it's going to take five minutes at the end of the five weeks. If I say, do it in 15 years, same thing. It's not going to matter how much delay we put in there. It's going to be the exact same thing. Do it now. Get it done. There is no reason to keep throwing good effort and good money after bad. Public schools are a failed experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to uh, paraphrase Franklin Roosevelt where he says that if you try something out, if it fails, admit it frankly and try something else. Public schools, that is a failed experiment. It is time for us to admit it frankly and move on. It is time to stop sacrificing the educations and lives of so many young men and uh, young American men and women to stop damaging the education of children. End it and let's move on. So it seems like it's an unavoidable subject, uh, especially when we're tying this to education. In New York, our governor has, well, he mentioned, he kind of went back on it, but he mentioned uh, completely transitioning the entire education system to online. Mm -hmm. um, touching on that and also touching on the coronavirus, 
What is the VOR administration approach to the national pandemic and why is your way the proper way to handle it? Uh, the, the other two, I mean, those are two humongous questions. So I might have to do the first yeah. one first. Go ahead and take your, take right. your time. Yeah. Uh, online education is inevitable. It is the absolute future of education. I don't see any other possibility happening. And right now we're figuring it out. I mean, a, a few years ago, I saw the writing on the wall and said, listen, online education is the future. And we moved, and it wasn't just me who saw the writing the wall. The other, yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've been blessed to have really incredible staff. Uh, Chelsea Snyder, the co-founder of the AP Homeschool Project, was actually the first person to really realize this even before I did, which is that online education is the, is the absolute future. It gives us the ability to do things that are impossible to do in person. The technological advantages are humongous. The educational advantages are disproportionate, but there's a learning curve. And it took us about three years to learn how to do it well. And to, 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 it took us at least two years to make it e equal, like online education equal to offline and probably another, like another year to make it significantly better. The way that I look at it is this, and I know I'm going to offend just like half the people in the world with this, and that's okay because that to me is just a usual day. In the past, if you wanted entertainment, you would go and you would see a play, right? Now, today, if someone says, do you want to see a play? You're like, oh, God, somebody make this end. And the only way you can struggle through a play is if you either have a Bluetooth and you're just listening to a TV show in your pocket or you're just eating about 57 pounds of candy while you're doing it. Because it's not that plays are boring. It's that they're so much boringer than TV shows and movies that no one can tolerate them except for those that that are just so classical and nerdy that they're just a whole different level of intellectual from at least myself. And the future of education is going to be, it's not going to look the same. I and mean, right now we're in that first phase of education, right? You know, if you look at the earliest movies, what were, the, what were they? They were just plays filmed. And we're in that first phase of online education. We're like, you know, even, even my classes are honestly more or less just like classes as you might do them in person, but, you know, adjusted and enhanced a little bit for, for online. But that's the beginning and that's not the end. And this is going to go so far to the point where the online education experience is going to be untouchably past the offline education experience in the same way that today Netflix is unsurpassably past you know any kind of play ever. People see a play once a year. Even billionaires see a play maybe twice a year because they have to because that's like a law when you're a billionaire. You have to see more plays. But it's like the downside of being a billionaire. I mean, every billionaire is like, man, I just missed those Netflix days. So one, I think online education is the future. It, there's no way for that, that to be done. I, I don't know how you feel about that, about that, Jake, but but I don't see in-person education as being a meaningful part of education in the future. Sure. And I haven't gone through it nearly as much as you have with the whole online uh, transition. It sounds like you had a lot of experience in making that system work, a lot of uh, um, the trial and error, I guess. <laughs> uh, you said about four years, four years, five years it took you to put, adding it all up and trying to think. Yeah. And, and the thing is, we're still, we're still a chain. I mean, every, every week, every month, we're adding new things, we're experimenting with new things. I mean, it, you know, you can tell when you're dealing with a mature system versus a in-progress system, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I'm teaching when I'm teaching calculus, calculus the the methods of of teaching it aren't mature, but the 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 subject of basic calculus is pretty much 
there. I'm not gonna. I don't expect to see big, huge changes in the basic ideas of calculus. You know, within the next like three days, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the methods of teaching it, especially teaching it online, I do expect to see big, huge change in the next three days, and three days after that, and three weeks after that. And it's this huge online educational ecosystem, and it's it's and it's in its and and it is in its infancy. It's where it's where movies were before citizen kane that's where we are right now <laughs> sure um let's let's touch on that second part of the question with the coronavirus <laughs> epidemic um like i asked what what is the vora administration approach to the national pandemic and what is the let's proper talk, way to handle let's talk it about the current situation not the current, current coronavirus situation let's just talk about the current shortage situation a bit because sure. we need to have that background to even answer the question right so we have to ask why is why is there a hospital short? Why is there a shortage of beds? Why is there even a concern? You think about the longest you would ever wait for a restaurant table, and what is it like? So let's say it's the busiest day of the year, it's Valentine's Day or something. What's the longest you wait? What three hours if you don't have a reservation? Maybe four hours, and that that would be an exceptional day. Like you would call up your friends and be like, "You won't believe this. I waited for four hours for a table." Right? Mm-hmm. That's the extreme longest you would ever wait. Now let's consider a hospital. Is four hours an unusual way to the hospital? No, it's a fast one. Is two hours unusual hospital? No. If you're saying like, yeah, I waited for two hours at a hospital, people be like, oh, that's really cool. How'd you get in so quick? Did you know the president of the hospital? Do you own the hospital? Are you famous? How did you get a two hour wait at the hospital? That's what they asked. And so how did that happen? I mean, there, it's the same thing. It's a building with experienced staff that know how to do a thing. Where the where the Where's that coming from, right? And there's a few things that are done, making that happen, and it's happening because of government. It's happening on purpose. Their goal is to create a, a shortage in a lot of states. I'm not sure if New York is one of them, but my guess is that it probably is. If you want to build a hospital, if you want to build a hospital, you need to get a certificate of need, not from the state, not from sick people, from your competitor, from the other hospitals in the area. And of course, they'd be like, hell no, we don't need any more hospitals. They'd be like, would you like competition? They'd say, no, of course, they don't want competition. But And so that's that's the literal current situation. And that's what the government's allowing, an artificial shortage. To me, if you want to make a hospital, just go make it. I mean, if you have the money for it, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's, not, just a, it's not such a small undertaking that just every single person would be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to build a hospital. I mean, it's still a big thing. But to Make it that you need to get your competitor to like endorse you with that. I mean, that's nonsense. Mm. So you have the certificates of need. Now, it gets dumber than that, Jake. It literally gets it gets even worse than that. If you if you look at the best doctors, I want to talk to some of the best doctors in, say, Switzerland. All right, best doctors in Japan, best doctors in Germany. They all have one thing in common, which is none of them are allowed to practice medicine in America. Mm. And that's why they're not here practicing medicine in America, because for all America's shortcomings, it's still way better than a lot of other places. It's a lot better than England, a lot better than France, it's maybe on par with Switzerland. So those people are not allowed to practice medicine here. And it's not about keeping you safe because nurse practitioners are allowed to practice medicine, which I think is right. I think that's good. But the idea that the worst nurse practitioner in America is somehow more skilled than the best surgeon in Switzerland is, is laughable. I and mean, that's absurd. But it gets even worse than that. If if you are waging a war and you don't care how you do it, one of the things you do is you try to cut off medical supplies to your enemy. It's not done. It goes against the Geneva Convention and basic decency and everything. But that's a way to really hurt the other side. What the U.S. would not do to our worst enemy in a time of war, the U.S. government is doing to us in a time of peace. Mm. 
right now, we are not allowed to buy medicines from other countries. If Iraq did that, if Afghanistan did that, if Syria did that, can you imagine the uproar if, if the if the president of war or prime minister or king or one of the countries in the Middle East said, yeah, you, our people are no longer allowed to buy foreign medicines, we would call that a human rights violation because it is one. And that's what's happening here. So these shortages are being created. So first, in a board administration, there wouldn't be any shortages. Why? Because I would end all of that stuff on my first day immediately. I would either end it through pardons. I would end it by making the customs enforcement on medicine stand down. I would end it by making the customs enforcement chase their tail and put them on some nonsense, other things. I would fire them. I would do something to make that no longer possible. If you want to buy medicine from Canada, buy medicine from Canada. If you want to practice medicine in America, go ahead. So that'd be the first thing. My specific response to the coronavirus is, is I would use the one executive power that no president has really used since Ronald Reagan. And it's the most powerful executive power of all of them, even more powerful than the presidential pardon, which I've indicated I'm going to use a lot. <laughs> the power to ask. I would ask people, I would say, here's the thing we're dealing with. I believe that if those of you who can stay home, stay home it's going to keep us safer. And I would tell the truth about why I wouldn't, I wouldn't force I, but I don't think the president should be forcing, but I think that, that any elected or non-elected leader has every right to ask. And even though now I'm certainly not, I'm not the president right now, but I am a candidate and I am somebody that, that's, that, that has some amount of following the libertarian movement. I've asked people, I said, please stay home. I'm not going to force you to because I can. Even if I could, I wouldn't, but I can ask. And that that would be the presidential power I would use the most. I would tell the truth, say, here's the risk, here are the dangers, here's how we can stop them, and then I would ask. And then I would let the free market handle the rest. And the free market would build up and would do what it's doing right now, increase biosecurity. Right now, biosecurity in America is terrible. I mean, we lose 50,000 people a year to the flu. What the hell is that? I would want the free market to innovate, to think of different ways. I would encourage, I would ask, let's end this. Let's shut it down. Now with force, now with taxes, now with regulations, but by encouraging the free market to take on this incredible challenge of biosecurity, to take it seriously and make ending of dying of these diseases just a thing of the past. I, I agree with that. I agree because I've been saying if, since the beginning of this pandemic, I said, look, if you're elderly, look, if you're immunocompromised like my wife, mm -hmm. stay home, stay home. Everybody else who is an adult, I mean, even regardless, you should be able to make your own decisions as an adult. Mm -hmm. It is part of your First Amendment. Your First Amendment protects everything that you just said. Mm -hmm. It protects your ability to go out, protects your ability to protest, protects Peace your ability to do this yeah. live stream, protects your ability to go out and, uh, and practice religion, which in New York City, in my state, I don't live towards New York. I actually live uh, more north than that. But in New York City, you you have the Hasidic Jews who are being arrested by the police for for uh, to, for holding a funeral for one of the uh, fallen rabbis. Yep, it, it, it's just a total bridge on our on our First Amendment, and I just want to kind of tie it into that First Amendment issue. It has never it been is. so regulated in history like it is now, and I'm terrified that so many others are, and so many others are about how easy it was for our government to throw away our Constitution out the window. What now is the appropriate response for Americans when our government does that to us? In in your mind, vote them out. Vote them out. <laughs> uh, be 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 armed, but but so 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 here's the thing. And 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 it was you know I had a very kind of weird experience, right? 
So mm -hmm. I was of the Libertarian Party presidential candidates, probably of, of any party's presidential candidate, but certainly of the Libertarian Party presidential candidates. I was the very first one to voluntarily suspend travel for my campaign. Mm -hmm. And the reason was that I was I'm not in a in an age range uh, that that has that has any particularly high risk. As far as I know, I'm not immunocompromised. I mean, I guess you never really know until you find out. But as far as I know, I'm not. And so so but but I realized, listen, I'm going from state to state to state. I'm shaking hands with, you know, like hundreds of people. Right. I'm, I, some of them are old. Some, you know, they're, they're, some of them are in high risk areas. And so to me, it became a question of, am I willing to put people at a very high risk in order to further my campaign? And, and you know, in-person campaigning is my strength. I mean, that's, 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 that's what I do best. In-person public speaking is what I do best by far. And I knew that not doing that was, I mean, that's going to hurt the campaign. That's obvious, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was a decision that I made. And so that's the, the thing that I want, want to drive home here which is voluntary decision-making is not equivalent to selfish decision-making. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It's just voluntary, just unforced. Now, what was interesting is when Maryland was under was put under like a formal lockdown, then every bone in my body was like, nope, I'm just going to get out. I want to get out and just like cause mayhem. I had to stop myself and I said, listen, even though it is odious and wrong for the governor to be putting forth this kind of a nonsensical position, it's still the right thing to do to restrict travel. And so I had to think about that for a bit. I mean, I didn't have to think of it for very long. I had to really think a lot about suspending campaign travel, I'll tell you that much. But but that was that was the thing. So what, it, what, what that illustrates to me is how powerful asking can be, how powerful voluntary action can be, and how hateful coercion is. The second I felt coerced, I want to do the opposite. And I wasn't the only one. Plenty of people who had voluntarily uh, self-isolated were just like, nope, this that's the last straw. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a huge movement here in New York. Uh, on Facebook, there's there's a group called Reopen New York, and there's mm -hmm. thousands of people in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I want to get your opinion on this. Because Facebook, as you know, Facebook and Google are enormous, but they're private yes. industries. They're yes. private businesses. Yes. Do you think that they have the right to take down uh, posts and information regarding protests, times and places, or you know, civil disobedience? Do you think they have the right to do that? Or because they are so large, do you think that they should be prohibited from doing so? They, they have the right to do it, but there's a second half of that, and that's a big second half. Uh, Jake, I want to give you this example. Here's And, and, and I talked about this. This actually came up a couple days on an RT interview, and I, I made a similar-ish point there, which was imagine for a moment that there was a city council, all right? And they say, we're going to hold our city council meetings on this third-person commercial privately owned uh, venue, right? Mm-hmm. But, but this privately owned, fully private venue that we're going to be using for free, we're not charging the taxpayers anything, there's a bit of a catch. Women are not allowed to speak on this privately owned venue. Mm. So, okay, fine. The privately owned venue can say, yeah, women can't speak or men can't speak or people under or below over a certain age can't speak. They, they can do that. But it's not okay for the state, for the government that represents us to then have anything to do with that, right? 
-hmm. It is not okay for the government to then essentially outsource its own censoring. If the government is going to be using any kind of an any kind of a third-party communication device at all, it is an onus that the government has to make sure that there are no restrictions like that. And if there are such restrictions, the onus is on the government to refuse to use that app in any way whatsoever. Mm. So I believe the, the response in this case should be that all government agencies, all elected officials, all appointed officials, every single person should, should be mandated by law if you believe in laws, I don't. I mean, I'm an anarchist, but if you want to go with the law system, should be mandated to leave Facebook entirely, to leave Twitter entirely. That any agency should not, under any circumstance whatsoever, put out relevantly public or urgent information on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, because those are organizations that are stifling political debate. And the government does not have the right to outsource the stifling of political debate to a third party and then say, we didn't do it, they did it. It's just like it's just like the government doesn't have the right to hire mercenaries who then go setting kids on fire and say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't us. It was the people we hired. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing. You cannot outsource un unconstitutional decision-making. Facebook wants to censor stuff, fine, go ahead, let them. The government has to cut every single tie with Facebook, though. Every tie. I, I think I agree with that. Um, there is a, there is a part, I, I agree with that. I agree to let private business do what they want to do. But there is like a portion of me who feels, I don't know, angry that Facebook has, the, has such a massive company that has the power to just silence people. Um, so I think that's where a yeah, lot. It makes of me angry too. I mean, our campaign ads have been banned because we we said that we that we supported marijuana legalization, mm -hmm. oh, which I do. Let's I talk know. about let's talk about that. You just you touched a very touchy subject for a lot of people: the war on drugs. Yeah, and I know you're going to have a field day with this. Sure. What is your position on marijuana, and why is it important that we end the war on drugs? I think I think using marijuana is idiotic. I don't use it. I don't encourage people to use it. In fact, I actively discourage people to use it. There's a there's a program that we have at Bora Method that's specifically designed to help people not give in to peer pressure. And it's not a particularly nice program. Nothing that I do is particularly nice. It is a brutal set of social tools that allow you to intimidate the living hell out of anybody who would try to peer pressure you. I mean, it's it's so I so when I say I don't support marijuana use, I don't. I also don't support heroin heroin use. I don't support cocaine use. I think they're all bad ideas. I don't do it. I don't encourage it. And I try to give people, uh, especially young people who maybe don't have the same self confidence and whatnot, the the uh, the social techniques that can allow them to to achieve the the social gains you would get from drug use without drug use. And it's 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 something that I think is important. But I don't want the government involved in that because the government's terrible at everything. Yeah, I mean, just like I, I believe in education, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't do education as my job if I did. You know, I, I studied in math and economics in Ivy League College. The normal path from there is investment banking, but I didn't want to waste my life pushing money around. I wanted to do something that mattered. So I chose education because I think it's important. In the same way, in the same way, I do believe that reducing, restricting, stopping drug use is a good idea. But the government's so terrible at everything. They can't do anything right. So why would, would I want to put them in charge of it? I don't. And so me saying end the drug war is, is, I don't mean like end the war on drugs. I mean, end the government's involvement in it. I intend to continue my war on drugs personally. Let me tell you that. And 
I'll tell you this as well. I'm going to do it. I have already done it with greater success than the government, which with government success has been either zero or negative. I already have done it with greater success. And as I continue to expand some of these programs, it's going to be even greater success. So your stance on it is more from like an advocacy advocacy stance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're, 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 it's through private advocation for this uh, instead mm -hmm. of letting the government have dominion over an individual's right. Your, your stance is more from, uh, you know, let the individuals boycott and, and advocate themselves what they will. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, that, that individuals boycott, let them advocate. And, and for me as an educator, most importantly, to give people the tools that they need. You know, when, when I, when I've talked to people who've done a lot of hard drugs, right. And I've asked them, you know what, cause, cause, cause part of the research to build this program was to find out what was the motivation, right? And I said, I said, you know, what, what were some of the reasons? And almost universally people would say, say the same thing. They would say, I would never do drugs like just to do them. Well, at least at, at the beginning, right now, later on, sometimes things, but I never do it just to do them. I would do it because I was, you know, trying to impress somebody older. I was trying to impress somebody who was romantically interested. And I was trying to do all that. So, I mean, that that's what what gave us the opening in creating this and, the, and creating that program is let's find some other ways to achieve those same goals without drugs. That That's all it is. And so if you if you if you took away the social benefits of drugs, if you took away all the social benefits, your popularity would plummet. Hmm. So I, I kind of appreciate that. I really do uh, that you're you're more so for the individual's freedom rather than letting the government get involved. I've mm -hmm. I've thought the same thing about abortion. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, let, let 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 individuals boycott. Let them advocate. I personally detest abortion. I, mm -hmm. I truly truly do. But mm -hmm. I don't think it's the government. Like you said, the government sucks at everything. Yeah. Keep them out of it. Keep uh, let let churches protest. Let individuals protest. Yeah. Just to touch on abortion, what's your what's your stance on abortion? And people ask, is abortion murder? Yeah, obviously. I mean, I, I don't know what the biological difference in people's mind is between somebody that's like, you know, 8.9 months and 9.1 months old. But I mean, whatever the difference is, I can't. It's not a difference that I can detect with my eyes. It's not a difference that, that I that I know of any chemical test that can die to me is the same thing right so unless we say that 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 killing an infant is also not murder and that killing maybe a two-year-old i mean at, at some point you if 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 killing somebody that that's 8.9 months old is somehow not murder I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me uh so but again like you i don't believe in government involved because they they're just the worst at everything they don't do anything right they do everything wrong they make every problem worse just by touching it they have like the reverse of the king midas touch they get involved with anything and they turn it into a disaster i mean look at drugs drugs are terrible i mean to, to me i don't believe that drugs are any kind of way to encourage human flourishing but mm -hmm. they've taken a a bad problem and turned it into a staggering catastrophe. And the war on drugs is the worst thing I've ever seen. And so with abortion, I mean, yes, yes, it's murder. It's obviously murder. But we want to actually stop it, not to just pretend to stop it, not just to go through the legal motions of pretending like we're doing something. Let's actually stop it. And how do we actually stop it? I don't know. I have some ideas. I can tell you that that as somebody that, that works in education as a counselor, I've advised people against it, um, and I've seen other people that advise many more people against it, and people who have shared their stories about, and including people who who are who are raped and had it and chose to keep the child, who shared their stories and talked about how even in those situations they chose this thing. When when that gets those types of methods are 
actually affected because they open people's eyes. Listen, the, the, the bond between a mother and an infant or a fetus or, or whatever is, is it's genetically hardwired to be the strongest bond that can exist. There isn't a stronger bond that exists in the whole world. And so it's a bond. I trust that bond more than I trust the government. I also trust the average con artist more than I trust the government, but I definitely trust the bond between a mother and her biological child more than I trust the government. And the reason, if you look at why, let's look at why, why do, why do so many abortions? Like, what's the real reason? Do, do people say like, oh, sweet, I have a kid, I'm let me kill it? No, it, a lot of it is look at the way that it's been made nearly impossible today for young people to get jobs. It's not because the, 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 of course, minimum wage laws, but it's not just that. Many states make it a law that if you are below a certain age, you can't get a job at all. It's against the law to give you a job. We've had to break laws to hire people under, under a particular age because I don't care what somebody's age is. I want to care that what their ability is. And so today, if you, know, you imagine that you know, somebody's like a 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old girl, how old is the father? probably the exact same age, maybe a year younger, maybe a year older. And if that 15-year-old girl's boyfriend is also 15 and biologically through genetic law wants to pass on his genes, but because of the government is not legally allowed or able to get a job to provide for his child, then yeah, you throw something else in the mix. But if that's something else, there's no inherent desire to have abortions. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of agree with that because in New York state, there are a lot of laws around like you can't work in the food industry unless you're X age or you can't work in this industry unless you're 18 or 17 or so on and so forth. You know, as coming from a guy who, who was a teen dad, I found out I was going to be a father when I was 17, had my firstborn child when I was 18. There were a lot of jobs that they couldn't get yet. And mm-hmm. I had to wait until I was 18 or 21 to get those jobs. And that's um, insane. Yeah, it it completely hindered my ability to 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 grow, not just financially, but but also as a father. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, now I'm fortunate to to be of an age where I can just have one single full time job instead of juggling three fast food jobs Mm -hmm. and uh, trying to pick up seasonal jobs throughout the year. So I get where you're coming from. There needs to be reform. You should be able to hire someone based on the content of their character and not based on the, the their age. I'm gonna tell you one thing that we had to we had to do, Jake. We had a, a student that went through our program, our, our, the program at, at at my at my education company, Bormath. I mean, they are I mean, they're hard, right? They're just mm-hmm. really hard. But he's just, he was he was homeschooled. He was just just five, six, seven years ahead. And so by the time he was 13, he'd gone through our programs. And so I said, well, I mean, why as well hire you? You know this stuff about as well as anyone's going to. And the things that we had, he actually a little bit, he was like 12 and like 11 months or something like that. And so the restrictions that the government had put were so, I mean, we, we just kind of like smuggled, smuggled in the money and we, we had to pay like his mom because the banks weren't allowed to give him a bank account. He's earning money, right? Mm-hmm. And he's intelligent enough money. to hold the job. Yeah. yeah, doing something positive, doing something that everyone agrees, helping people get better at math, get better at reading, overcome their fears. He can connect with them because he's a closer age. There's so much he's doing that's good. And he's not allowed to have a bank account because the government says you can't have a bank account until you're, you know, whatever age. Like that's idiotic. That's, you know, that's the, the suppression 
of an entire class of people. In ancient Rome, people would start families when they're 13, 14, 15 years old, and the Roman Empire eventually fell, but not because of that, because of their military overreach. And the sad thing is in America, if you're 14, you can certainly attend a military recruiter's presentation, but you can't attend, you can't get a job. You can learn about how amazing it's and exciting it's to be to be a soldier, but you can't see the reality of getting an actual civilian job at that age, and that is criminal. Mm. So I want to give you the floor now because we've been talking for about 42 minutes. I want to give you the floor for as much time as you'd like. Make your case on why you're the best pick for the Libertarian Party uh, nomination and what your campaign represents. Sure. When, when it comes to becoming the Libertarian Party nomination, the nominee, there are a lot of people who are going to tell you there's some special, fancy, tricky trick, some clever wording, some cool marketing that's going to make it happen. And that's not how this works. It's not how it's ever worked. Every political victory goes with a cultural war, a victory in a cultural war. And every cultural war has been a war of attrition in all of human history. There's a famous letter written by Jane Adams, uh, sorry, by, by Abigail Adams to her husband, John Adams, where, where she writes, remember the women, talks about you know women's rights, women's freedom and all that. This was somebody writing to her own husband. And you know what difference that letter made? It was a, such, it was a beautifully worded letter. It made exactly zero difference. Not until women became absolutist, uncompromising, brutal, refusing to yield one single inch, demanding 100% rights or nothing at all, fighting tooth and nail and saying, it will be this way. This way is right. The other way is wrong. If you want to oppress women, then you are an evil person. Not until they got to that level did it make any difference. After Abigail Adams wrote the, the famous Remember the Women letter, 150 years passed of absolutely nothing, no progress of any noticeable kind at all. It requires a culture war is a war of psychological attrition. It is a combination of rock solid backbone and psychological war. And if you're ready for that, then we can change this. If you're not ready for that, pick whoever's the most handsome, pick whoever's the most well-spoken, pick whoever's clothes or style or hat you like the most, pick whatever because it's not going to make any difference at all. There is no fancy trick to get this done. But if you are ready to have an unyielding, unflinching war of attrition, if you are ready to call out statism as a pure and unadulterated evil, ready to fight against government schools, to fight against government involvement in everything, to work to end the state, you're ready to work to encourage people to leave their federal government jobs, to leave government schools, to encourage young people to not join the military, to not join the police, to not join the federal government in any way or the state government in any way, shape, or form then I'm your candidate and you can join me at votevora.com. Now, listen, this is not just me saying like, you know, I want to be mean to people or I want to hurt people. Both my parents, when growing up, both my parents were civil servants and both of them left, not out of choice, but because the agencies were being shut down or whatever. And I got to see firsthand the people who I looked up to the most in the world transition from being sort of lazy bureaucrats who are using maybe a 10th of their potential, if that, to people who are inspiring and hardworking, innovative and creative, it is better to be outside of the government. It's better to be outside of the government in your job, in your education, in every part of your life. And if you want to bring that gorgeous gift of freedom to people in a way that's absolute and uncompromising and actually going to make a difference, then please join me at votevora.com. All righty, everybody. Again, thank you tuning in to the Freedom First podcast and live stream. If you like what Arvin is about, again, 
go to his website at votevora2020.com. It's just votevora.com. Votevora.com. Sorry. (laughs) Stay free, everybody.